For this latest season of Crime Beat Chronicles, we wanted to highlight a series from the Roanoke Times titled Septic that was first reported and produced in 2018 by journalists Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. A five-year-old child, Noah Thomas, went missing in Dublin, Virginia in the spring of 2015. When his body was discovered days later in the family's septic tank, the mother was put on trial both by the court system as well as social media, where misinformation, accusations, and vengeance-fueled comments spread unchecked. It is a tragic story, to be sure, but reporters Demet and Korth went to great lengths to capture and present a well-rounded, humane narrative that explores the ways a community ultimately failed one of their own, while also touching on broader implications like the effects of Facebook, the stigma of drug addiction in rural America, and the distortion of facts. This is the seventh and final episode in the series, so firstly, head back to the start of the series if it's your first time here. And secondly, make sure that you are subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcast to make sure that you get the installments for next season as soon as they premiere. Once you're subscribed, you can explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. So for this episode, what you're about to hear will be broken into two parts. The first section will be an interview with Noah's preschool teacher who gave a eulogy at Noah's funeral and wanted to make sure that Noah was remembered as a joyful little boy instead of just a life cut short by tragedy. The second part of the episode will be an update from 2018 covering the legal case which was resolved six months after Septic was first released and more than three years after Noah Thomas's death. We will make sure to include links to the relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes, so check those out for even more context and reporting on the story. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. It's the work of local reporters that makes shows like this and so many others that you enjoy possible. So thank you for listening. Here is the seventh episode, Remembering Noah, which was first produced in 2018 by Roanoke Times journalists, Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. About 200 people filed into Dublin United Methodist Church on the day of Noah Thomas's funeral. His parents, Ashley and Paul, were there, as were many of his aunts, uncles, and cousins. Police and firemen who had spent days looking for the child took turns placing their division patches on his casket. Noah's aunt, Mandy Worley, spoke about the child in her eulogy. So did Stacy Arnett, his preschool teacher, who had formed a special bond with the little boy. We visited Stacy at Noah's old school. She showed us a bench the school installed in his memory on the playground where Noah used to run around. Back in her office, she kept pulling out little reminders unprompted. There was the Hot Wheels car that belonged to Noah that Stacy now keeps in her desk. Where do you keep this? In my drawer. <laughs> There's a popsicle stick jewelry box that Noah and his mom made for their teacher. A Valentine's Day card that has been pinned to Stacy's corkboard. Um, it says to Miss Arnett from Noah Thomas. Thanks for being so good to me. So you've had that on your board for three years now. Yeah. Stacy still has a folder on her computer with photos of Noah. She takes them of every student all year long, and then sends them to parents when school lets out. She clicked through Noah's album, pointing out some of her favorites. We were making cupcakes, and then that's when we had our caterpillars, um, and we would get them out and observe them. But he just, uh, and that was that. There was one of him asleep under her arm after a long field trip. 
He was going down the slide and playing with insects. But he just, uh... And that was another thing when he was really concentrating. If you look in this picture, he's got his tongue stuck out just a wee bit. And that, that he, you could see that often with him, um, with that tongue out. There he is asleep under my arm. When Stacy was writing her eulogy she would deliver at Noah's funeral, she said she didn't want people to leave that day with the only image they have of Noah as the boy who died in the septic tank. He was much more than that, and she wanted everyone, even those who had never met him, to know that. And that's why she spent a lot of her time on stage just kind of sharing her favorite memories. And that's how we want to end this story, too. From the Roanoke Times Newsroom, this is Septic. I'm Jacob Demet, reporting with Robbie Korth. Quick note on this interview. We had some audio issues, so the questions we asked were re-recorded later verbatim, and the interview was edited for brevity. When they asked me to speak, I, what I wanted to convey is, you know, I knew that um, that there would probably be a lot of people there that didn't know him. You know, um, what happened to him was a, was a really tragic thing, and I, I mean, it, it touched a lot of people that really didn't even know the little boy at all, and I, I wanted them to know who he was. I did not want them I'm sorry I didn't want them to have um, the image of what happened as the only way that they knew him so um, I just I thought about him from you know, every day, the things that I noticed, just, and, and I just started listing. I just started um, writing out a list of words, just things that uh, that he liked, things that reminded me of him, you know, colors and um, the activities that he liked, and just, um, um, and then I just told a story. Um, it was our, our uh, fall field trip that we take to the pumpkin patch and we went to Williams uh, Apple Orchard in Withville. We rode out into the field on the wagon and um, my rule has always been when you get your pumpkin you have to be able to carry it yourself because you know I can't manage and juggle 18 pumpkins that are you know big so that was the rule but um I looked up, and, you know, everybody else was getting back on the wagon, and he was one of the last couple. And he had a pumpkin that was probably, oh, about basketball size, maybe a little bit bigger. And it was heavy. I mean, it was a solid one. You could All you could see was his, you know, his little hair sticking up over the top and, you know, his arms wrapped around it. And um, he was struggling with it, getting it down the hill. And he he would put it down, and he would roll it a little bit, and then he would pick it back up, and he would carry it. And finally, I decided I'm like I'm I'm gonna have to go help him pick up this pumpkin. Then we have lunch, and that was probably um, another thing that uh, really reminded me of, of Noah. He um, he loved chips. He loved potato chips of all kinds. I mean, it was just that was one of his favorite things. And um, we were all sitting around the table and having lunch and talking and. Um, I had my lunch and I had a sandwich and I had a box of chips beside me, just a little lunch box. And, um, he wanted to try one. So I let him, I told him, go ahead. And so then we just kept talking and, you know, and I wasn't paying very much attention to him and we were just, just all the kids, we were all talking and, um, I felt this tug 
on my shirt. And he said to me, I think I ate your chips all. And I looked and every single one of them, they were gone. I mean, they were just gone. And I said, oh, I guess you did because it was just so funny. And he um, he had these, uh, I think it was goldfish crackers is what he had. But he had them and he said, here, I'll trade you. And he handed me in his little hand, he had a handful of crackers that he was going to, you know, trade me. So I took those. But um, he just, uh, you know, that was just the way he was. I mean, he, you know, he felt bad about it I guess I don't know but he was offering me something in exchange that's just kind of the way that that he was Um, very thoughtful very warm um, very loving I'm not really sure how to explain it but I don't there are very few people that would meet him that wasn't drawn in I don't know he was just a a loving and caring kind of kid and um, I know that you know he just I just he was one that I hated to tell no and that, you know, no is, comes pretty easy for a teacher sometimes, but he was one that it was hard to, to tell no. And um, Do you remember how you found out he was missing when the news first started spreading? I do. I got a text. Uh, it was that Sunday afternoon, and one of the um, teachers sent a text to me, and she said, she says, I'm so sorry to hear about Noah and I was like I I had not seen the news or had not I just had not heard it um I tried to call his mom to see if I could um you know help her or you know or if they had found him since I had heard that or you know what they were doing to look um because like I said he's not he wasn't that far up the road I think it was that same afternoon they had um, bringing in like search teams and search party and everything at the airport. So I, um, I took my daughter and we went. And at that point, they didn't let community members look. They just wouldn't let you. So, um, you know, we just had to sit and wait, just much like everybody else. So it was a hard wait. Did you ever lose hope? No, I. No, and it, there were there were some cold nights, and it it really bothered me. I, I lost a lot of sleep thinking about him being out and lost um, and cold. Um, but I, I was just so hopeful that even until till the till on Thursday when um, when they when they found him and realized where he was that um, that he would you know come back home. I was always hopeful that he would find his way back home or they would find him you know I, I never really wanted to to think any other way so when they did find him I remember it was in the early afternoon mm-hmm. it was right at dismissal time it was right around three o'clock is when um they called well they brought several of us to the office those of us that had had contact with him um teachers that kind of thing and um brought us to the office um we had um, our superintendent was here and our assistant superintendent. They drove down, and then it was the four or five teachers and our uh, administrator was in there, our principal. And um, after they told us what had happened, you know, that they had found him and that he, ha- he w- they found him deceased, um, it was just uh, quiet. I mean, it just, I, I think it was just, uh, no, we didn't know what to say, or and it was just it, it was. I know it didn't last as long as it felt, but it felt like that silence lasted forever. Who asked you to deliver the eulogy? 
his mom. His mom called me um, on Tuesday uh, evening and asked me if I would do that. And um, I wasn't really sure that I could. I, I just felt that I had to because she asked and... And I, and again, like I said, I really wanted people to be able to shut the image that everybody had out and see him for the bo- little boy that he was. So, um, so I worked on it, um, pretty much for the next two days. And then his funeral was on a Thursday. So, um, I did go there to, to the, um, to the viewing and I talked with her briefly there um but she was she was so distraught that the whole family was distraught I mean they were just um it was just a it was a terrible time I mean she just was beside herself um as was his his father and his aunts and um it was just really hard time that's kind of about the time Facebook started to take a turn people started blaming and all that did you notice when things started to kind of change? When it started to change, I stopped looking. I won't. I would not look. I took like um, um, just a hiatus from Facebook. I just did not want. Um, I didn't want. I just didn't want to read it. You know, I just did not want to um, read it. I didn't want. I didn't involve myself. I didn't comment. Um, but yeah, I mean, things. I, I know things got really, really nasty. Uh, really, really quick. Um, Did you ever feel like this is the parents' fault? Mm, you know, I I think all parents do things in retrospect that they wish that they hadn't done. Um, as far as, uh, you know, taking their eyes off their child for a minute uh, or two, uh, to taking a nap when they take a nap, um, all of those things. And fortunately, most of us are lucky enough that uh, everything turns out okay. Um, You know, I'm I'm not, I don't want to lay blame because I think of all the times that when my kids were napping, I laid down and took a nap with them. I did that. You know, and a lot of people are very adamant that they never do that. you know, that when their kids are sleeping, they don't sleep. And I'm just like, well, you know, that makes no sense because you know you sleep at night. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't like to point fingers as to who I think is um, at fault because I think there are, is more than one um, factor that contributed to the whole tragedy. I, I don't think any one thing was the sole reason that he's not here today. I think there were multiple things involved, and unfortunately they just came together um, in just the right way that created a situation for this to happen. A lot of the comments have accused Ashley of not caring about her child, but it seems like maybe you saw a different side of that. The sun rose and set on that child. I mean, the sun rose and set on that child. Um, you know, he, um, he was, uh, you know, he was just uh, the sunshine in her life, truly. Um, he was loved. He was cared for. Um, he was wanted. And I think that she is suffering each and every day. I think she is in a living hell each and every day.
When you saw the pictures of her being led in and out of the courthouse in a bulletproof vest, what went through your mind? I was worried um, for her um, because I, I know people were angry, and I do believe they were that angry. I still think they're that angry today um, because it is um, a sad and senseless loss. It's a tragic loss. Um, but like I said, it's not... Um, I don't think it's for us to pass judgment on on her. I think, you know, I think she's certainly passed judgment on herself. I'm sure there's not a day that goes by that she wished she hadn't taken that nap. Um, you know, or that she hadn't checked to make sure that the door was locked up high where he couldn't get it. You know, all of those things that, you know, and like I said, that all parents have realized after something and you think, wow, you know, we were lucky that time or gosh, this could have been so much worse, that kind of thing. Um, Looking back at it, um, so Ashley and Paul both spent time in jail. Um, Ashley had had her sentence, her conviction overturned, but it's still kind of going to the Supreme Court. Was justice served here? I don't know that there's always going to be two sides to that coin. I think that you'll have people that felt like um, everything was as it should be, and then you'll think that then there are people, I mean, as on Facebook, called that she should have the death penalty. Um, So... You know, I don't know that you would ever be able to say in the public eye that justice was served um, because you'll have, you know, two very distinct um, campaigns on that. But um, Do you think there could ever even be justice for what happened? Um, You know, what do you do to bring back a little boy? Or what do you do to um, to restore his opportunity to grow up and live a full life? Uh, you know, I don't... Um, we certainly can't do that. Um, we can't have a do-over. And, I, you know, ultimately, I think the only way that you... I mean, would be able to do that. That would, you know, be the ultimate justice. Would be able to give him his chance back. Um... And we can't. As we wrap up, there's still one person we haven't talked to yet, and it's possibly the one person we wanted to hear from the most. It's Ashley White. She's kind of kept to herself since the trial, so we don't know a whole lot about her life right now. We have been able to confirm that she and Paul have moved out of Pulaski County. We also know that Ashley still hasn't been reunited with her daughter, Abigail. Social services workers took her when Ashley was arrested. We heard during the sentencing hearing that Ashley's mom was taking care of the infant. But her mom died while Ashley was in jail. Someone else took custody, and Ashley has been petitioning the courts to get Abigail back. Because it's a custody dispute over a minor, the entire case is sealed. So we haven't been able to go to hearings or even have clerks confirm that it's still ongoing. But if Abby was six months old when her brother died... That means she's about three years old today. There's more to Ashley White than I understood the first time I covered this case. She lived a life littered with tragedy, from her best friend's murder, to her father's murder, to her struggles with drug addiction, to the horrific death of her child, 
to the death of her mother, to her imprisonment and separation from her other child. I'll be the first to admit I still don't feel like I know her, but how could I? We did try to talk to Ashley and Paul, a lot. We made phone calls and wrote letters. We exchanged emails with Ashley's attorney. Basically, we've been told they aren't ready to talk yet. We hope that changes soon, and if it does, we'll be updating the show with that interview. I approached Paul in the gallery at Ashley's last court appearance. It's actually the only time I've directly spoken to either parent. I told him that I didn't think any reporters covering this case as it broke had the opportunity or took the time to try to get to know Ashley and her family. I told him I wanted to be the first to expose the whole Ashley. It still kind of gives me chills the way Paul looked up, locked eyes with me, and said, and I quote, You will never tell my family's story. After everything he had been through, I think this was Paul's way of saying he doesn't trust anyone to give his family a fair shake. I don't blame him, but we did try. But Ashley's lawyer, Kelsey, did tell us they are aware of this show. We asked what she thinks about the case being turned into a podcast. Could it help Ashley? I think it's helpful for people to hear about her as a person. But at the same time, I'm not sure that it it matters a ton to her because, you know, she's just trying to move on. She's not going to be able to repair her reputation with the Pulaski community. And it kind of feels like it's on on the people in Pulaski to kind of think about their reactions and think about why they had those reactions and maybe reflect a little bit deeper about why they were so quick to judge somebody. So I don't know that Ashley is really the one that needs help by this. Um, I hope it makes the community think about things a little bit differently, but beyond that, I'm not sure. Septic is produced by Jacob Demet and me, Robbie Korth. Music comes to us courtesy of Mike Gangloff and Matt Payton. All courtroom audio in this project was obtained from the Pulaski County Circuit Court Clerk's Office after a request to Judge Bradley Finch. This show was something completely new for Robbie and me and the Roanoke Times, so a lot of it we had to figure out along the way. Before we end, we want to thank the following people. Everyone we interviewed throughout the process, Judge Bradley Finch for being transparent and sharing court files in a way that's kind of unusual in Virginia, to our colleagues who listened to rough drafts of the podcast and helped it improve immensely, and especially to our editor, Todd Jackson, who allowed us the time to take on a massive reporting project. This has been a production by the Roanoke Times. It wouldn't have been possible without the entire staff of the paper, but more importantly, we couldn't do anything if it wasn't for the readers who support us. Please do society a favor and subscribe to your local paper. So, like I said at the beginning, up next is the update from 2018 by Robbie Korth and Jacob Demet covering the legal case, which was resolved six months after Septic was first released and more than three years after Noah Thomas's funeral. The Ashley White case came to a surprisingly abrupt end just about a month after we published this podcast. We kept waiting for some big grand finale, an emotional hearing, and maybe a few hugs outside the courtroom. We do have a quick update to share, but first, let's refresh your memory. Ashley White was initially found guilty of three charges— Two, child abuse and neglect felonies for the time she left Noah and Abigail alone when she took Paul to work on the day Noah died. And then there's a third, more serious count of child abuse and neglect leading to injury for the time that she took a nap and Noah died. That third charge is the only one that Ashley appealed. 
it was the one that basically said she was criminally responsible for Noah's death. Ashley won her appeal, but the Office of the Attorney General, which took over the prosecution after the trial, kept pursuing. The AG's office asked the Supreme Court of Virginia to reconsider the appellate court's decision. That's where we left things when Septic was released. Ashley had another legal victory shortly after the podcast came out, when the state's highest court said it would not take up the case. But the case still wasn't over. The attorney general's office had the option to continue pushing in a legal battle that could have rolled on for years. So life went on after we published Septic, and Robbie and I went back to our normal reporting beats. I was exchanging emails with Michael Kelly, a spokesman for Virginia's Office of the Attorney General, on June 19. I thought, while I had his attention, I would see if there was any update on the Ashley White case. He emailed back at 1.56 p.m., first addressing the other story we had been discussing. And then he jotted one sentence at the bottom of his email, maybe one of the most consequential PSs I've ever received. Also on the White matter, he wrote, The time to seek rehearing has expired, and the Commonwealth will not be initiating any further action. And that was it. That was the grand finale of a legal case that had stretched on for three years, that had once stirred up so much anger, and that we spent over a year following. Ashley White was not guilty of causing Noah Thomas' death. From the Roanoke Times Newsroom, this is a Septic Podcast Update. I'm Jacob Demet, reporting with Robbie Korth. We thought about doing an update right when that happened, but ultimately we decided to wait until all the paperwork was filed. That happened in November, when Pulaski County Circuit Court Judge Bradley Finch, the original judge who convicted Ashley, issued an amended sentence. Originally, Ashley had been sentenced to serve one year and 11 months in jail, followed by 15 years of probation. But that was for the three charges, before her most serious count was tossed. So Finch had to issue a new sentence to account for the less serious conviction. But he didn't change much. Ashley's probation time was dropped from 15 years to 10 years. The jail sentence stayed at one year and 11 months. She had already served that time, so she didn't have to go back to jail. For the sake of clarity, the judge trimmed five years off of Ashley's probation after the appeals court decided she was not criminally responsible for Noah's death. Her most serious charge had evaporated, but her sentence wasn't radically different. We knew all along that the appeal wouldn't do Ashley much good. She had already served her time in jail, and she could never get that back. Her son was still dead, and her life still turned upside down. So it begs the question, has her overturned conviction changed anything at all? That's an impossible question to answer. Some would say the public had convicted Ashley long before her trial, and no appeals court or seven-part podcast series could fix that. But we do have proof that at least a few people now have a fuller understanding of this case. We know because they reached out to us and said as much. I'm about to read from a Facebook thread on the Roanoke Times' account after we posted a link to the podcast there. I do see a few signs that the conversation has changed since the time we started reporting for this show. I've heard his legs and arms were tied, one commenter wrote. False, another replied. Listen to the podcast. They go through all the facts. I'll bet you read that on Facebook. Someone else chimed in. Here's another good one. I am in the process of listening to this now with my daughter. It has completely changed my outlook on things. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I judged harshly. But of course, these kinds of comments are still the exception. Believe me, someone wrote on May 25th, 
the ones of us who was from that area and know the whole story, not some fabricated aftermath, know what happened as it unfolded. So did the court's decision to overturn Ashley's verdict or this show make any difference? Uh, Who knows? I think for some people it did, for others it didn't. We get that that's not a very satisfying ending, but that's how these stories go more often than not. There are no appeals in the court of public opinion. I think there are three very different groups of people with regard to this case. There are those who got all their news and information from Facebook, where most of the rumors still have not been corrected. Then there are those who read the newspaper and have the facts, but have never actually heard Ashley's story in her own words. Now there's a third group that listen to the podcast. They probably don't live in Pulaski County and would never have followed the case as it unfolded, but they have now. We reached out to John White just in the past couple of weeks because he's a rare kind of person that crosses all three categories. You'll remember John as Pulaski's unofficial historian that you heard from during episode two. John uses the term we a lot when he describes his hometown, but I don't think he always means it. He told us he had a similar emotional reaction to Noah's death as everyone else, but he wasn't part of the mob on Facebook calling for Ashley's hanging. Now, though, he says he has a fuller understanding of the facts of the case. But even he would agree he's probably not the typical Pulaski local. So I would say that, that for the most part, I would be surprised if there is a great deal of knowledge about how that case has evolved. That's just my own personal opinion based on the conversations that I hear. And I have not heard much talk about this at all, which, which is sad um, because I think that here's a woman who... Uh, tragically lost a child and then had to go through her own humiliation um, with sort of the public view of things. And so at this point, for her, I feel such compassion that we immediately went on a witch hunt, to use a familiar term, right, Um, without good evidence or without a process that helped her defend herself. Um, and I think that's sad um, and not the way it should have worked out in the mind of the general public. Now, now that said, it, it, it seems to me that the news cycles move on to other things. And I would be surprised if the general public, particularly people in Pulaski County, are familiar with where the case stands. Yeah. That's a little frustrating, if I'm going to be totally honest. But our goal was never to change people's opinions on this case. It was to get the facts out there and let people make up their own minds. Of course, there were many people who had already made up their minds and weren't going to seek out new information to change that. And I don't think we reached them. But for those who did, the show certainly exceeded all of our expectations. Remember, neither we nor the Roanoke Times had ever produced this kind of news podcast before. Whatever the highest estimate of reaction we'd hoped for, we received more, by several multiples, and from all sides of this issue. We've had a couple college classes asked to use the show as part of their curriculum. That was pretty cool. My mom's book club in Fayetteville, Arkansas also listened to and discussed it, so there's that. We've also been asked a lot of questions, things that we didn't address in the show, or at least it didn't address well enough. So we thought that's how we'd wrap up this quick update. So here are some of your most frequently asked questions. 
A lot of people had strong opinions about Ashley White's landlord, Gary Meadows. That surprised us. Way more people thought he should have been held liable for Noah's death than we would have predicted. So an update on that front. Gary still has not been charged criminally, and based on past interviews, we don't expect he ever will. He has been sued by Paul Thomas on behalf of the Noah Thomas estate, as we said in past episodes. That case is ongoing. The charges have been dropped against Tuftite, which made the septic tank lid that Ashley and Paul's lawyers say Noah fell through. But the case continues against Gary Meadows. Both Gary and Sharon Meadows were deposed in that case in September. No hearings are scheduled. People also want to know how Ashley and Paul are doing today. Unfortunately, we don't really know. We again asked Ashley and Paul if they would do an interview for this update, but they're still not ready. We're holding out hope that we'll be able to sit down with them sometime, but that's not going to be today. Based on court filings, it seems they have moved out of Pulaski but still live nearby. It also appears that they're still together, but we can't say that for certain. People also ask what happened to Abigail, Noah's infant sister at the time of his death. Ashley lost custody of her when she was in jail, awaiting trial, and we know that there was a custody dispute upon her release. But since the case involves a minor, it's sealed in local courts. We don't know how it ended, and unless someone changes their mind and wants to talk about it publicly, we probably never will. Another interesting question that people have asked about, but we don't really have an answer to, what role did gender play in this case? How do we think things would have played out differently in court if Paul had been the one home taking a nap instead of Ashley when Noah died? Would a father that left his child unattended get as much backlash as a mother? That's a hypothetical that we'll never know. I would say probably not, but... Who knows? And finally, this is likely the thing we've been asked about the most. What's up with the theme music for this show? The name of this song is Blind Man's Lament. It's an old folk song. We wanted something that would represent the Southwest Virginia setting for this show. So we started with our colleague, newspaper reporter Mike Gangloff, who also happens to lead a double life as an accomplished musician. In this recording, he's performing the song with Matt Payton, another local musician. So we'll let them play us out. And for an update on the update, a wrongful death lawsuit filed against Gary and Sharon Meadows, the owners of the property where Noah and his family lived, was settled in 2019. The parties involved agreed to a $200,000 settlement to be paid out to Noah's parents and sister. As part of the settlement, the Meadowses did not admit to any liability for Noah's death. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, And this was the seventh and final episode of the series. Like we said, uh, please subscribe wherever you get your shows to guarantee that you'll get the latest installments of next season, which will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. We'll include links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community.